0: Well, in some sense, I wish I had a stool. That's one most comfortable. I hide away in a room Wednesday nights and teach, oh, three to four classes, I think. Um, We go through, we teach a class on Latin and logic, Hebrew and Greek. Those are once a month, so the students can follow along. So we want to get them all in. Then we have historical theology, systematic theology. So this sermon is kind of that. So if you hear like, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, it's because last year we've been going through the Heidelberg Commentary, and they would say, well, not really, you're kind of going into the depths of the Heidelberg Commentary, and we are, because every time we see traces of Augustine or Anselm or Clement of Alexandria, and we can draw out some of those fun things, and then what I've been doing is just showing how it shows up in literature uh, like Tolkien's literature and C.S. Lewis's literature. So it, it finds its way in my sermons because it's just where we've been at the last year, Wednesday nights. That's my job description, by the way. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Chris Peterson. I'm the associate pastor and I've been here working on 20 years in January and I came in for leadership development. So we've, Lord willing, uh, the Lord has been very gracious. We've trained men and sent them out and they've gone to seminary and are now pastors because once you've kind of reached 20 years those things happen Um, you start to look back on men that you've been part of their lives and are now um, full-time ministers of the gospel and it's encouraging to be in ministry that long with you and serving well enough about me we want to look at God's word you're always told when you preach don't do three introductions. Don't do two introductions. Do one introduction. Well, I've got three for you. <laughs> because I was trying to think through our focus this this morning, if I could title it, is the day, the day of the Lord was green. You think of a storm and you're, you're on something. The day, the day of the Lord was green. But it's a biblical theology of the serpent, sun, and day of the Lord. Well, what's a biblical theology? It's tracing from Genesis through, through Revelation looking at the grand themes of the serpent, the sun, Christ, and the day of the Lord. And we're going to f- drop in on some amazing material in Luke 23. And that's where I get the verbiage of green. The wood was green versus the wood dry. Well, I, as I was thinking through, how could we really, in the introduction, make this meaningful to us? And so here's the first introduction. Helen Keller. Some of you know of her. In 1880, in Alabama, she was... She was, even from a, a young, very young age, she contracted an illness that left her deaf and blind. And she describes it as being in a sea of dense fog. Can you imagine the chaos within, trapped within, no way to connect or communicate without? One day, a 20-year-old, Ann Sullivan, she, she herself was visually impaired, stepped into her life. She made a breakthrough when she allowed Helen to feel water in her hand and then spelled... W-A-T-E-R, water, into her hand. And in that moment, the world came rushing in. Her blindness turned to light. The chaos became order. And so she began rushing around, touching the ground, when it spelled out, touching the, the tree, touching the, the house porch, frantically, because for that moment, she now had Names. She had words. She had language. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian Church of the futility of the mind, a mind that's darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of ignorance and hardness of heart. Paul says in Ephesians four, seventeen through twenty-two, that this led to callousness and enslavement to sensuality, greed, and impurity. And this is the old self the edemic self, the natural self that's corrupted through deceitful desires. So even as we're born into this world with that edemic, this old man nature, we too are blind, trying to make sense of a world that seems beautiful in the outset and yet we're hit with suffering and trials and death. How do we order it? How do we make sense of it? It is not happenstance that the Apostle John in John 9 gave us an irony in the blind man who could see Christ as Savior, though he was physically blind. And the self-righteous Pharisees, who though they could physically see, could not spiritually, they did not have heavenly eyes, to see the light of the world, the Savior of the world, Jesus. In George Orwell's eerily prophetic novel, The sovereign government limits the ability of people to think for themselves through dumbing down the language. The institution that established politically correct vocabulary was called newspeak. It removed moral words so that the next generation had no categories to understand life. There's a marvelous article given by Joseph Pierce in Faith and Culture, the Journal of the Augustine Institute. The title says it all. If we are lost for words, we have lost our freedom. We need names. We need words. We need language. I've been reading this fabulous book on the philosophy of Tolkien. And the author in the chapter on the philosophy of language underlines the power of words of names, of language, by appealing to Gandalf, where he would not even utter the words of Mordor that were on the ring. He wouldn't do it in the Shire, but he did in the sacred place of Rivendell. And if you remember from Lord of the Rings, a dark shadow, a evil presence was summoned with those words, words, language, names. One might think of Frodo who used the elvish tongue in his war against Shelob, the evil monstrous spider. The author says, The power of words is based on the fact that real things are found in words. Words are not merely things among a world of things with the ability to point to other things. No, words are the encompassing frame of the world of things. Language is the house of being. And he says this, Things constitute a world only by the creative word of the author who names them. So things come to us in their names, that the power of things comes to us in the power of their names. And he continues then, what's in a name? In the name of Jesus, devils were exercised, hell defeated, heaven's gates opened for us. What's in a name? Everything. In a name, the whole universe was created. And that name was the word of God, the mind of God, the logos. What's in a name? Moses asked God that question at the burning bush and God answered, I am. The author continues by describing different kinds of words that the author, our God, has created. He describes musical words that you see in heaven. Revelation 5 describes the gospel as a new song. We just read it in Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. The gospel, a heavenly song, a new song. It's not a song from this world. But then he goes on to describe when musical words condescend, they take on poetry, words without music. Poetry stoops down, it takes on prose, which is where we're going to see our theme today of redemption, a narrative, a story of redemption. And when prose steps down, it takes on math or law, the order and beauty of the universe. It's interesting when you think of music, that in the Cimmerian Tolkien describes God, the Uvatar and the angels, the Valar as singing the world into being. And C. S. Lewis, in his magician's nephew, puts the song of creation and Aslan, the lion's mouth as he sings the world into existence. Why are we highlighting this? We're going to look at the storyline of scripture, the redemptive storyline, the redemptive prose. It stepped down to us from heaven. Tolkien wrote in one of his letters, you are inside a very great story. And the story is filled, I think of the word of God, with music, poetry, prose, and law or math. These are words of the divine author. Now, if we come full circle, the story of redemption comes down from heaven, encompasses us, interprets us, opens our eyes to understand the nature of the world, the nature of evil, the nature of goodness and redemption. And C.S. Lewis says, only the Christian redemptive story provides forgiveness of sins. For many readers... When you finish Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, we're left with a sense of longing as if Tolkien's world is the real world, and this world is not. But in a way, Tolkien's world is the real world. Drawing from this author, Tolkien has simply taken our upside down world, that is, a world turned upside down by sin and the darkness of sin, and he's turned it right side up. He's provided his readers the lens of a supernatural and natural world. He placed them into a Christian worldview. He acknowledges the creator God. He acknowledges evil and suffering and offered redemption through the prophetic office of Gandalf's death and resurrection and the priestly office of the hobbit Frodo's sacrifice and bearing of the burden of the ring to judgment and the kingly office of Aragorn's own exaltation from a lowly ranger to ascended king. And Tolkien acknowledged this in one of his letters. But you see, God has also acted in this world. He's written the redemptive story. He stepped down and acted redemptively. He has interpreted his events and acts. The Bible is God's prose, God's word, God's story. And in it, he turns the world right side up. So for that, I want to look now at the redemptive story. And we want to trace this beautiful theme. Was that four introductions? (laughs) Hopefully you're ready. We're going to step into God's story, God's redemptive story, the real redemptive story, the flesh and blood, Christ incarnate. I want to turn our attention to God's redemptive story, but because our world has lost the backstory of the supernatural, and we're not saying mythological, we're saying supernatural, we've lost the words, we've lost the names, we've lost the language, we've lost the story from which to interpret the true, the good, and the beautiful. God, the reality of evil and suffering, the plan of redemption, and the hope of restoration. So, if you're taking notes, we're going to do a 30,000-foot fly over the valleys and plains of Scripture. Now, you might need your app, Bible, or if you're really good at Bible sword drills, remember those? (laughs) You'll find it really fast because we are going to drop in and look at some of these texts on the serpent, son of man, and day of the Lord. But here are three hooks to hang your hat on. I, I don't know what that even means to be How do you do that metaphorically? We're gonna look at warring characters, because every good story has gotta have warring characters that represent humanity. We're gonna look at the background. The background's a wilderness setting. You need to understand and interpret this world as a wilderness. I know we've printed it up here in America, but we're, we're to look at the world as a wilderness world. It is hostile. God's common grace is amazing. It's restrained a lot of that effects and we can enjoy life and it's God's good gifts, but this is a wilderness. And then there's a warfare plot centered on the day of the Lord at the cross and the return of Christ. So warring characters, the battleground, which is a wilderness setting and the warfare plot. We're, we're gonna drop into Luke 23 and look at the cross. So we need the, the, the words, the names, the setting, And this day of the Lord plot to understand our place, your place in a cosmic heaven, earth, hell battlefield. And Lord willing, to bring encouragement to you because I'm sure you're going, what is going on, especially when you're hit with the trials and suffering and death. Now, as far as warring characters, we have two, the son of man and the serpent, the son of man and the serpent. We'll focus first on the son of man and the day of the Lord. We want to to look at two characteristics of the son of man. That's very intriguing. Now, every good story has enemies, heroes, good characters, right? C.S. Lewis has White Witch and the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. He has an emerald serpent witch in the silver chair. He has a sea dragon. So think of these, these monsters of the sea that are threats. And he has that in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And then Tolkien has the Dark Lord, uh, Melkor, Sauron. Melkor is more the satanic figure, the evil Valar, the evil fallen angel. We have ringwraiths, Nazgûl, dark Riders. We have characters that are all, often common folk, right? You have normal children from our world in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And then you have the hobbits, just common folk. But then you have warriors like Aslan and C.S. Lewis Or that's broken up by Tolkien into three offices. We talked about that, Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn. You need those. Well, we have them in scripture because this is the ultimate story. The son of man and the day of the Lord. Now, the four gospels are gonna give us four lenses on the son of man. In Matthew, we see Christ as saving king. In Mark, we see Christ as the saving covenant servant. He's fulfilling a mission. And Mark views, or John presents Christ as the saving son of God underlining his deity, no doubt. And Luke underlines Christ's mission as the Son of Man. And that's where we want to draw our attention, the Son of Man. So if you have your Bible app and you can move fast, we want to drop into Luke 17. I'm cheating because I put it in my notes. Luke 17, 26 through 30. We want to see two characteristics of the Son of Man. Most are familiar with Son of Man from Daniel 7 as judge. And you do see that in Luke 17, 26 through 30 just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. So you think of judgment, right? The days of Noah. When you drop down to 29, you just pick up Lot. You know the judgment of fire and sulfur rained from heaven, destroyed them all. That's at Sodom. And then verse 30, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So we have we need we need a character study of the Son of Man. He's coming as a judge. And we have these redemptive stories. The Lot Salvation from Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Noah's family in the ark from the flood. They inform us with regard to this day and what it means to hide in Christ. But that's not it. If you drop into Luke 19, verse 10, there is a servant irony of the Son of Man. And we tend to miss this when we think of Son of Man as judge. So Luke 19, 10, you're familiar with it, right? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Salvation has come to this house. Luke 19:10. For the Son of Man came to judge. Well, it's true. But here it says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you move to Luke 22, where we see the Lord's Supper, we get this beautiful characteristics of the Son of Man as a servant. In Luke 22, verse 22, Quoting Jesus, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So we do have a, a the Son of Man is judged, but he's gonna go as been has been determined. He's on mission. Say he says a covenant mission. In verse 19 of Luke twenty two, backing up a little bit, this is my body which is given for you. This is the servant, this is the Son of Man. It's giving, substitution. And in verse twenty, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. And then in verse 27 of Luke 22, but I am among you as the one who serves. You see the irony? Son of man, judge. Day of the Lord, flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Son of man, servant. Son of man, servant who pours out his life as a ransom for many. And the Lord's table captures this. So if there is a day of the Lord, there's a a day of the Lord of, of judgment, the son of man, the executor of that. But we also get pictures of the Son of Man who brings a day of salvation, both residing in this one person, the Son of Man. Now let's turn to the enemy, the archenemy, the the serpent, and the day of the Lord. Now, my goal is to help you out as you send your college students off to universities, and they tell you that when you see Rahab and Leviathan or... A yom of the sea that is just borrowing and retooling from the Canaanite religions. And this is just a, the Hebrews are just retooling Canaanite religions. That's what they're going to teach your children. But see, what we've forgotten is covenants and types. And we've forgotten there's an actual backstory that starts in Eden that as Christians, we're going to argue that the world has borrowed. It's the other way around. And what do you mean by covenant types? Well, we're part of a covenant nation. We have offices. We have a constitution. We have covenant types. Ever heard of the bald eagle? Have you ever seen a picture of the bald eagle fighting the great red dragon? What would you be thinking? China? Probably, yes. Probably not the great panda there, as strong intonations, but the great dragon has much more heritage. Fighting the bald eagle. Or what about a great bear of Russia? What do you think? You go, Oh, oh my, it's mythology. No. God has created these creatures, and these creatures are used in covenant nations to represent nations. We call that covenant typology. We do it. So what the Bible is going to do is take these monstrous figures and lay it in light the scheme of covenant warfare. Now, behind these figures that we're going to look at, Rahab, and we'll look in Isaiah. We're going to see Rahab, the great monster of the sea. We're going to see Leviathan, this eight-headed creature, and certainly you'll find them in other religions. But what you need to understand is there are covenant types like the bald eagle and dragon that represent satanic power as it's against God's people. Now, that I'm trying to help you with that. Now, there are many resources. We do this in our Wednesday night classes. I'm not going to give you those resources now, but you, you need to understand that as you're reading this. So in Revelation 12, 9, you may just want to jot it down. I'll just read a little section from there. The great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, Revelation is connecting a thread back to Genesis 3, 15. In Genesis 3, 1, this crafty serpent, we, we often use the terms of Satan incarnated as serpent. We're not saying serpent's mythology. Nope. We're talking about a taking in an embodiment of this great dragon. Now we, we don't know how. We, there's a lot of exploration on that. Did he just embody some dragon? The the term for serpent can also be used of a great dragon or monster. But Revelation 12 connects us back. And in Genesis 3:15, we have this first promise of enmity. After satan led adam into rebellion against god god pronounced the proto euangelium the first gospel the first gospel in which god promised that the woman would have a seed who would crush the serpent's head but there would be two offspring two seeds two families that of the serpent and that of the son of christ this is the war now go with me to isaiah 51 9 through 10. We're going to drop in and see these great sea monsters. And what I want you to understand is that behind this is the empowerment of the devil. This is a scriptural interpretation. These are not drawn from the Canaanite mythology. Certainly there are relationships because we're saying that the world is borrowed from the Edenic story and it traveled. We're flipping the table. And we would say because Jesus is the incarnate one. He's come down. He's God flesh. And he's interpreted the story, so we trust him. He's validated by his death and resurrection, fulfillment of scripture, so we trust his word. So we have an authority to appeal to in the interpretation of scripture. So Isaiah 51, 9 through 10. I want you to see Egypt represented as this great Rahab. But you would never think of the empowerment of the devils as enslaved God's people. And even looking at the Pharaoh as he's, Containing symbols of serpent. You can explore that on your own. Isaiah 51, 9 through 10. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Doesn't take much imagination to see Pharaoh empowered by the serpent, the dragon, Rahab, the devil, taking on the the picture of a mighty serpent with all its scales, its armor, passing through the sea after God's people. And God steps up as the mighty champion and slays the dragon, slays Pharaoh's army. This is not mythology. This is covenantal typology, just like you would see the bald eagle and the dragon. Psalm 89, verses 8 through 11, the deluge, the flood, is described as a mighty sea monster. Think of this mighty flood. What God had used to cleanse the world, there is a satanic effort to destroy the promise, right? Because through Noah comes the, the offspring promise of Genesis 3.15. So we see the cleansing but you also need to understand the threat as a mighty sea monster. Well, where do you get that? From the power of the, the devil, this devilish empowerment and threat against God's people. Psalm 89, 8 through 11. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Now we have the flood depicted as Rahab crushed as his people are saved. In Psalm 74, you're already in the Psalms. Move back to Psalm 74, verse 12. Psalm 74, 12 through 15. The wilderness is seen as, as a Leviathan figure. It's a threat against God's people. And you think of the scapegoat going off to the, the demonic figure of Azazel in the wilderness. It's a portrayal of demonic empowerment and activity. And God is leading his people through suffering to grow them, to strengthen them, to defend them, to protect them. But it is given the picture of this mighty monster. Psalm 74, 12 through 15. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. So think of the wilderness as a Leviathan with mighty heads, seeking to swallow and destroy God's people through whom the seed would come and God crushes it as you think of the staff in Moses' hand as he hits the rock and he provides through the slaying of Leviathan, through the slaying of the wilderness, through the slaying of the demonic powers, provision. And 1 Corinthians 10 says, through the hand of Christ. Now I want you to see one more, the day of the Lord and the serpent. So go to Isaiah 24. And here I just want you to see I just have time to read the whole thing. I'd love to. Let's see what we can do here. Isaiah 24, verse 21. And then we want to do 25, little sections. And then Isaiah 26 and then 27. So we'll just grab sections. So if you get to Isaiah 24, 21, we've got something to, to start with. So this is the day of the Lord and the serpent. On that day, Isaiah 24, 21, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven, demonic powers, heavenly principalities, In heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth, and they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days they will be punished. And the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Now this idea of darkness is going to be picked up in Luke 23 at the cross. So just have that in your mind. Isaiah 25, verse 6. So you're thinking day of the Lord, punishment, yet... God reigns on Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem, His glory being before His elders. In Isaiah 25, there is a mountain of the Lord of hosts for all peoples, a feast of rich food. Drop to verse 7. Boy, I love this. This is called reversal in scripture. And He will swallow up. Think of what serpents do. They swallow, dragons swallow. Think of Moses' staff swallowing the serpent. It's a great reversal. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. So the dragon, the Rahab, Leviathan, satanic powers, is attempting to swallow up God's people. No doubt you should see that in the grave and death with Christ. But then God swallows up the swallower. It's a reversal. It's beautiful. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. But in Isaiah 26, verse 20, there's a time of hiding for his people. Come, Isaiah 26:20, 20, My people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has, fury has passed by. Verse 21, for behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Now look at 27-1. This is the Leviathan connection. This whole thing is interpreted as this Leviathan. We've already interpreted Leviathan. I'm not going to do it again. 27 verse 1. In that day, when all this is accomplished, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Two warriors the son of man, who's a judge. He's going to bring on the day of the Lord. He's also a savior. And we see this serpent, this dragon, this Rahab, this Leviathan that is opposed to God's people. And God is in the business of slaying that foe. Number two, the battleground setting. It's a wilderness. It's a wilderness. Now we're going to drop into Luke 3. Now we start moving into Luke. Luke is telegraphing for us this this battleground, this warfare. And first, he wants to identify Christ as the second Adam. And in Luke three twenty three, and then verse 38, I'm just going to take the capstone of this genealogy here. It says, identifying Christ. Luke 3, 23, we see Jesus, he's... Person of reference here, verse 23, Jesus. You see that? And then we have the genealogies. Then he dropped down to verse 38, the conclusion. He's working backwards through history. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He's doing this for a purpose. He's telegraphing for us. There's, We've got a second Adam. Notice his connection to Adam. This is going to be a, a duel. You need to think of wilderness, Adam, serpent, Dual warfare. In Romans 5, Paul says, he summarizes salvation judgment to two Adams. First Adam, he transgressed God's law. He failed against the serpent, right? It was a garden trial by fire and he failed and he surrendered allegiance to the serpent. And the second Adam is going to reverse that, swallow the swallower. Now with that in mind, with the Adam in mind, look to Luke 3, Twenty-one, and this is where Jesus is baptized, and in particularly verse twenty-two at the very end, Christ is baptized in verse twenty-one In verse twenty-two. The Father gives His word, His language, His statement about the Son: "You are my beloved Son; with you, I am well pleased." So, I want you to think through what's going on here. The whole of creation in Genesis 1 have been formed out of water and by, by water, 2 Peter says, right? Out of water, by water, and then the formulation of the garden and the fire by trial with the serpent, Adam, fails. Christ taken out of water, by water, he's inaugurated for his ministry, his, his messianic ministry at his baptism, and he goes now into the wilderness. Adam had all God's good gifts for him in the garden. He, he was equipped. Christ walks in, and he's going to face the devil, the serpent, in a wilderness setting. So the setting is a wilderness setting. Remember, Adam is sent out east and two cherubim with their swords guard the way. So the the garden itself is portrayed as west. The wilderness is portrayed as east. That's important. When you see the tabernacle structure and the the temple structure, they are... um, representations of what we would call the, the heavenly temple with the earth being like the outer courts where the altar, the burnt offering was given, outer courts, God's footstool, the earth. Behind the scenes, the Holy of Holies is represented in the heavenly places. So we're gonna take that tabernacle, see this as a mountain representing the Holy of Holies, the heavens, outer courts, the earth. And when you understand that, you see understand the idea of west and east This idea of wilderness in the east, the Holy of Holies is in the west. Outer courts in the east of the tabernacle temple, the Holy of Holies in the west. Ezekiel and Zechariah get on this with Christ coming from the east. Why coming from the east? Well, he's coming from the wilderness. He's done his battle. He's coming back as victor. He's coming from the wilderness. It's interesting that Frodo travels east from the shire. Tolkien's picking up on these ideas. A look at, go back a little bit to Luke 1, 77 through 79. Trying to build this wilderness idea in this west-east concept. Luke highlights in Zechariah, or sorry, Luke 1, 77. Luke highlights Zechariah's prophecy. He says this, that the Lord would give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The sunrise shall visit us from on high, moving from what? Rising in the east, that's in the west. Movement from the wilderness, movement from the darkness. We're to understand that we guys are in the wilderness, it's been prettied up by common grace, and especially here in America, but we, theologically and biblically, God's view, if you could pull back the veil, we would see ourselves in the darkness of a wilderness. In Luke 3, 4 through 6, there's a voice crying where? In the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Luke 3, verse 4. Voice crying in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, we're moving towards the setting of the wilderness and we're going to move into the cross here. Luke 4, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, you could say armored with the Holy Spirit. This is actually drawn from Isaiah 59 where God's saying, the world is opposed to me. Who will be a mediator? Who will intercede? And Christ steps up full of the spirit, armors himself with Ephesians 6 armor of the Lord and does it with his own arm. Here's Christ armored with the spirit to go into the wilderness to face the serpent, the dragon. He's led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And you remember the temptation. So this is clearly wilderness. It's a war between the serpent and the son of man. And you remember the temptations? He says, right in Luke 4, if you're the son of God, he tests him on whether he would trust the father's word. What did the, what did the father say at the baptism? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God's word from heaven. Satan is questioning God's word. Satan is turning the world upside down. If you're the son of God, make bread. If you're the son of God, right, worship me. Don't, don't revere God's holy name. If you're the son of God, jump from the temple. He's using Psalm 91, which is a messianic psalm, to flip the script on Christ to test him. And it comes down to this. Will the son on our behalf as the covenant servant, will he honor his father's word that he's the son? Or will he justify his sonship based upon his own independence? It's a garden duel over in the wilderness, As we move to Luke 23, where we're going to land and sin on, I want you to go to Luke 12. or Sorry, go to John 12. Go to John 12. I want you to see how Christ views his cross. John 12, 27 through 33. So we're taking this threefold temptation. We're going to take it to the cross. And I want to drop in on John 12. Because the way Christ sees his cross is ironic. He sees it as his coronation, his kingship. As he's raised up on the cross, as he's given the robe, as he's crowned with a crown of thorns, as they mock him with the scepter, the rod hitting him, God is using that to declare, this is my king. In John 12, verse 27, "'Now is my soul troubled. "'What shall I say? "'Father, save me from this hour.'" But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in the crucifixion, God flips the script, swallows the swallower, declares Christ as king. And judge, we might say this is a ceremonial judgment of the devil, his scepter is broken at the cross. okay, I want to go back and pick up something from Luke four that I, I missed right at the very end luke four thirteen and then luke thirteen or luke twenty three we 'll get there so luke four thirteen you may have missed this. this is so important to the luke twenty three setting luke four thirteen When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Threefold temptation. If you're the son of God, he's going to come back at a more opportune time. When is that? That's the question. Now, Luke 23. This is amazing. Luke 23, verse 29. Christ is moving towards Golgotha to the cross. Luke 23. Drop back to verse 27. Let's pick up some context here. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. The women are weeping for Christ. And what does he say? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Here's the title for the sermon. For if they do these things when the wood is green, and I made that green in my notes, what will happen when it is dry? That is astounding. The serpent has come back at a more opportune time, as I'm going to seek to prove to you, through a threefold temptation of Christ at the cross. And they're weeping as he's going to the cross, but he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And then he appeals to Isaiah 2's description of the day of the Lord, crying out that the mountains would follow them and protect them from the Son of Man as judge. And Revelation 6 picks up on this theme. But then he makes this tie-in, right? For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? A day is happening upon Christ. They're weeping. And he calls this the day the wood is green, but there will come a day when the wood is dry. Commentators have noticed that in this moment, it's as if Christ's sphere vision extends beyond itself to the judgment of the last day. A day when those who reject Christ, will cry out for creation to crush and bury them forever lest they face the God of creation, the eternal one, the holy one. And Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves because what is to come is the judgment from the living God. So the warfare plot that's the context. So we've had the war in characters, son of man and serpent. The battleground setting—it's a wilderness. The warfare plot. There is a threefold attack. Here at the cross, the serpent coils around Jesus and reissues the threefold attack from Luke four upon Christ's identity. We know that's a key right here, Christ's identity. So Luke, you're in Luke twenty-three. Just note in verse 4 that the multitudes, you got this whole throng of people who've already said, crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children. And then in Luke 23, 22, Pilate ironically asks the crowd three times, why, what evil has he done? Now, Luke brings us to the foot of the cross where we see three groups, the Pharisees, We see the soldiers and the criminals, and we hear three devilish attacks. Why three? Just think of God's reversals. He loves to reverse the attacks of the enemy. Three days, three nights, right? Christ's death, resurrection, ascension. So three groups, three waves of people are surrounding Jesus on the cross. They form three waves. They move from outer to inner, the outer wave, religious leaders. And the closer we move, we see the soldiers offering the sour wine to Christ. And then the criminals on his right hand and on his left hand, on both sides of Christ. It's a movement, a circling of Christ. Now, as they open their mouths, and I want you to catch this, they're eerily voicing the serpent's words in the wilderness First, the religious leaders, and then the soldiers, and third, the criminals. And they're questioning God's word that he is the son. And will he believe that he's the son? And will he act according to his sonship in light of his work? The serpent is wrapped in three coils around the cross, depicted in these three temptations, these three tests. You can almost hear the flickering movement of his tongue in the threefold trial. Heaven and hell are war. The earth is at the center of the conflict. Christ is hanging between heaven and earth. He is at his weakest moment bearing the wrath of God for sinners. On the cross, he is a sign. He is a sign of heaven's rejection because he's bearing the guilt of believing sinners. And he is a sign of earth's rejection because he's clothed in our shame. Weak. The covenant servant on mission. The attacks come. The dragon is coiled around the cross. And we see the first serpentine, satanic attack in verse 35 of Luke 23. The rulers, the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. So Christ's identity is put to the test, just like Luke 4, he's come back. His words are in the mouth of the religious rulers. The road of victory over the devil was to lay down his life to save others, Luke nineteen ten. And he would need to trust God's provision and trust God's protection, even over death, Psalm 16, and trust God's honor. But that's not it. Another wave comes, Luke 23, 36 through 37, the soldiers, the Gentiles, not just his own people and the religious leaders of all, mouthing the attack of the serpent, but now the Gentiles, who he's come to save, Isaiah tells us. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are the king, save yourself. The criminal, in verse 39, one of the criminals, and we know according to the other gospels, they both actually joined in. One of the criminals who were hanged, Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If you're the Messiah... Well, the father just said he's the son. Well, prove it on your own self-autonomy, your own independence. The war is on. The second Adam is about to do the duel with the serpent that the first Adam failed. The ancient serpent has reinstituted the garden trial in the greater wilderness of the cross. Adam faced the monster surrounded by the gifts of God. He had everything for him, but Christ is surrounded by the wrath of God for our sin and all was for his suffering. Now, I've never thought this way before, but if Jesus had saved himself, oh, the horror of the thought. Have you ever thought about what it would be for the creator, God? It would have been better for the sinful world and its inhabitants to sink into hell and perish in eternal judgment. The creator of the heavens If he'd saved himself, would have become corrupt, vile, unjust, evil, for he would have joined the rebellion of the devil in opposition to the law of heaven and earth. He was on mission to pay for our sins, to provide the perfect obedience to God's law that God required by his perfect obedience. And in so doing, to bring this world into the new creation, everything is at stake at this moment, at the cross, It would have been better to let the world perish than for Jesus to rebel against his mission. Everything is at stake at the cross, but God forbid such devilish thoughts. Just entertain for a moment with me that the creator and savior would save himself for evil and would rescue evil criminals for their evil. All hope for justice would sink into the abomination of injustice. All hope for the triumph of goodness would plunge into the darkness of perversion. All desire for joy would melt into the hopeless horror of terror for eternity. Good would be evil. Light would be darkness. Beauty would be vile. Rest would be torment. Blessing would be curse. Eternal life would become eternal death. Right would be wrong. Love would be hatred. Salvation would be oppression. Justification would be damnation. It would be turned upside down. Jesus entered in as the fullness of grace and truth. And the serpent tempted him to become the fullness of evil and wickedness. What if God forbid the thought? God, the son, the creator, the king, the Messiah. What if? But Luke 23, the spirit like a breeze from heaven. Luke 23, verse 40. We know because John three says he wakens the dead. In this moment, Christ has stood up to the threefold test. And the spirit wakens the criminal to the sight of Christ. And he says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Christ would remain under the sentence of condemnation for our sin. He would receive the due reward for our deeds. He would do righteously, innocently, obediently, justly. Having done nothing wrong, he would speak the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And now we get a picture of the day of the Lord inaugurated ceremoniously upon Christ. In Luke twenty-three forty-four, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Notice the darkness of Isaiah, the day of the Lord, the curtain torn in two and Christ finishing his work surrounded by darkness, surrounded by judgment. And the spirit again breathes life into this centurion in the midst of the darkness. He says, certainly this man was innocent. He's the just one. He is the righteous one. You see, this is the day that the day of the Lord was green. There is a day coming of judgment on this world. If this is an outer court, if this is an altar When Christ came and laid his life down on the altar of this world. For us, one day there there will come judgment on this world, on this altar. And that's the day the wood will burn. But at this day, at this cross, the day of the Lord came upon Christ that you and I would not have to face the day the day of the Lord will burn. But in Christ, we face the day of the Lord as wood that is green. He came to seek and save the lost. So this is his story. This is his word. This is his language. And by his word, he shines light into the darkness to right side up your upside down world. And the question for you is, will you trust him? Will you trust his word, his promise of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, by his grace to be declared right with God? It's his word pronouncement. If you can trust your sin and look to Christ, And as a believer, are you encouraged? Do you come back to his word announcements, his promises? He's trustworthy. He says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And those who are in Christ are weeping. Isaiah says, right? Swallowed by life because he swallows the swallower. Lord, we thank you for your grace. This story is the redemptive story above all stories. We we need it to make sense of life. It's beauty and truth and goodness that's represented in creation. At the same time, the horror that we face. There is a war going on. Sometimes we feel like we are wrapped in the coils of the serpent as we face our suffering and trials. Like a flood that's just drowning us from within. And remember that Christ has come down into this and swallowed the swallower. And he is our hope, our champion. And for now, you've purposed to use these sufferings to train us, to train us as your children for the new creation. We pray that you remind us of these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.